Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. As I, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and, law, and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefits were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we bow ourselves before you now, asking that you would help us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So today is a different sort of Sunday for me. Uh, It's significant. There there are certain mile markers throughout the year that sort of cause some introspection. Is that a word? Introspection? Intro. I think. (laughs) I ponder. I I reflect. And and today is one of them. Today marks um, the conclusion of six years of serving at Valley Baptist Church. Uh, On May 20th, actually it's tomorrow, um, of 2007, I basically stood up here, and there were only two of you present. There was Lloyd Beth. Lloyd Beth, can you raise your hand? Can I embarrass you right now? And Alberto. Alberto was the other one. Oh, and Irma was there too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was nervous that day. So there were three of us. During the first service, nobody was there that day. And during this service, there, there, there are basically three people, including me and Anna, and then Grace was the only one with us. So there were six of us. The church was in a dire position that it was about to close its doors or hand it hand the building and the resources over to another church um, during this time there was a man by the name of dan cookson who was this, the, the church planting strategist in our area and he connected me and connected the church together as an introduction to see if we might be a good fit and obviously they said yeah we'll go with this this young whippersnapper we'll give him a shot and um and so um, that happened six years ago. Today, we're entering into the seventh year of ministry here. Um, yesterday morning, the funeral that I went to was with Dan Cookson, the man who um, connected everything. And, and so it brings a, a, a new sort of significance. Um, yesterday at his funeral, I spoke. I did not want to speak, but they had an open mic. And as I sat there, all I could, I was deeply convicted that If the situation was reversed, he would certainly speak at my funeral. And so when the mic went around, I stood up and I shared about Dan Cookson and and how thankful I was for his life and his example and his passion for the things of the Lord. When he died, we were all caught off guard. We knew that he had lung cancer 
He was diagnosed a number of years ago. We thought he'd beat it, but then it resurfaced, but he didn't tell anybody. I mean, his family knew, of course, and he continued to serve the Lord. And when we would ask, how are you doing, Dan? How are things going? He'd say, it's not about me. It's about what is the Lord doing? How are you doing? How's your church? And this man was just an awesome guy behind the scenes that, that really changed the direction of my life and that the Lord used kind of with this church. And so when I think back over the course of the last few years, a little, you know, a little sentimental, if, I, if my math is right, I've preached no less than 500 messages since I've been here. Some of you go, yeah, it's felt like that, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's been a lot. But the thing is, is when I, five, six years ago when I came, I'd probably only preached 10 messages before that. I was a Navy SEAL. My, my resume was the only resume I'd ever created. And when I handed it, they're like, hey, can you create a resume? It's sort of protocol. Can we, can you submit a resume? So my resume was like 80%. Uh, Drager, factory certified by Drager to repair, to repair closed circuit dive rigs. I'm a close air support person. I can, I know how to drop bombs. I'm a high risk instructor. And then there's like, and then I went to Bible college and seminary and that was like it. There was no like ministry. And so thinking about the last six years, there's been many just sweet moments that, that I don't have words to describe how blessed I am from you as a body. There's also been deeply painful, hard moments that are all a part of shepherding a church, um, looking out and, and remembering, you know, Elle and Tom and, and these, these husbands who have, who have gone to the Lord during this time is, is, that I was there for is, is just valleys, but super sweet. And I'm just deeply grateful to be able to be your pastor. And I'm super thankful, especially for the three people that were, you know, willing to, to take a risk and to trust God and, and to let me be the pastor here. And it's, it's so rewarding to be here and to be your pastor. And I'm, I, um, you know, I serve on the cemetery board of directors mainly because, you know, everybody's dying to do it. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm hoping to get a discount on a plot here, you know, cause that's like, a. You know, that's, that's, that's where I hope to end up. And uh, I mean, not like next week, but like after a lot of years, like my plan is to be here and to serve and, and to be the pastor here. I, uh, there's only one more pastor that I have to beat. I'm chasing down George Farrington. He's the only one that's been here longer uh, than me so far. And I'm a little competitive. I can, it can play out in ministry, but I'm the pastor here and I'm looking forward to years to come. And, and uh, I'm just so blessed and so grateful and so thankful uh, for the joy and the privilege of being able to be your guys' pastor. Uh, this passage today deals in large part with discipleship or sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ. This is the calling that I have here at the church. My role is to help you all, or if you're from the South, the, the, the correct vernacular is y'all. The English doesn't have y'all. We need a y'all, like it really is. Second person plurals, you all, all of you guys. Ministry isn't me. I'm not in ministry because I'm a pastor. I'm in ministry because I'm a Christian, because I'm following after Christ. My role as a pastor in ministry is to help all of you fulfill your calling and walking after the Lord and serving him. It's to equip you and to shape you. And, and, And the main way we do that is through the teaching of the word, or the main way I do that is through the word of God. And so with that, we jump into Romans. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, he begins with this question. 
What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Strange question. Uh, how, how did how did he get here? Asking questions was a very rabbinic sort of way, like a rabbi, the way they would teach was through questions. Jesus would do the same thing. Uh, To have your students, you start asking them questions. See, the thing is when you ask questions, and especially if they're open-ended, not yes and no questions, you really understand where the student is. The the thing that I've come to terms with over the years is that God wants us to think. He wants us to reason. He wants us to know certain things. And as Paul's writing his letter, he, he can hear the argument or the, or the questions or the concerns that from the things he brings up. And that today's passage really is an outflow of chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Today's section has nothing to do with becoming a Christian. It, it has everything to do with the Christian life. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 5 Paul is making the case, how do you become a Christian? From that point forward, he's dealing with the Christian life. How does it play out? What's the significance? How how do things work themselves out? And so he made his case that salvation comes through faith. It's a gift of God by grace, and it's it's, it's actuated in one's life through faith or trusting what God said. And at that point of trust, you're justified, you're declared righteous. Not that you are righteous in your own works, because our works are but filthy rags, our our best things that we do. But we're declared a judicial statement. The opposite would be condemnation. But through faith in Christ, he declares that we're justified. And then he begins showing that it's not by works. And he goes back to Adam to show that our sin nature, our separation from God... It's through DNA in large part that when Adam sinned, humanity's DNA changed. We were then separated from God. We we sin because we're born into sin and we all have sinned. We all have fallen short. But as we're condemned through one man, Romans 5.12, we can also be saved through the act of one man and that's Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 20, he says the law came in the tr- so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That grace superabounded. And as Paul writes this, as he deals with this, two things come to his mind. First, is that his critics would surface. We know that he was, uh, the people that didn't know him or they knew his teaching, they thought, he's just done away with all the law. He says you can just do whatever you want. That You just are under grace. It doesn't matter. So just go crazy because God loves you. It's okay. Your life doesn't matter how you live it. And so as he writes this, he can hear them say, aha, guilty is charged. Now, the other group of people that would take that, that reasoning, well, well, if the law came basically to magnify, to expose the sin that's in our life, but the grace abounds all the more. Well, if the law magnifies sin, doesn't sin magnify grace? And if sin magnifies grace, I think I'm doing God a favor if I go crazy and I just live it up and I go, I start sinning all the more. And actually, I'm making God, I'm doing him a favor. 
Because then his grace is increasing. And actually, by my terrible life and getting worse, I'm making him look better. And so Paul, in chapter 6, verse 1, here's, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And he says, may it never be. The King James says, God forbid it. This is a, a, a powerful statement saying, absolutely not. If you go down that direction, you've misunderstood grace and you've got it all wrong. In the first 14 verses of chapter 6, he begins making the case for who is reigning. We saw at the end of chapter 5 that, that from Adam until the law that death reigned. They were not held guilty for their sin because the law wasn't there to expose their sin. Yet because they were born into sin, they died. And death is a result of sin. And sin was the king, was the one who reigned over all and continues to reign. But Christ came and conquered. And we see at the very end of chapter 5 that grace would reign. And by the time we get to verse 14 of chapter 6, he says, For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. And the idea was the, your pink slip. Who owns you? Who has your pink slip? I talked about my favorite car. What's my favorite car? My dream car? 1971 Super Beetle. Someday I'm going to get one. But they're getting expensive now. But that's a, just a great car. It was my first car. And I was so excited when I got that car. And I went there with my, my hot pocket filled with cash. And I whipped them all out in high school. The guy signed over the paper and I drove that baby home. It was so much fun. Then like six weeks later, I got the thing in the mail that was from the DMV, the pink slip that had my name, that the new owner is Gunnar Hansen. And I was like, yes! It's like I won the lotto. It was amazing. And so he's saying that if you're in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, if you believe in him and you're saved, death no longer holds your pink slip. It's been transferred to God. He owns it and you're owned. You're under grace. And with that statement that you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. Paul hears the people come up with another line of reasoning. Verse 15. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Well, if we're if we're not under the law, but we're owned by grace, then what's the big deal about sinning? God, God loves me. God freed me from the law. He he he. I'm no longer bound by those rules that constrain. Well, I like what F.F. Bruce says. That he says, to make being under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace at all. If that's your understanding of grace, that you think grace was given to give you liberty, which there is great liberty in Christianity. But if you think that grace was given that you would have liberty so that you could go hog wild and do whatever you want, You've misunderstood grace altogether. About a month ago, Deborah, who's back with the kids, she, she came to me and she said, Hey, Gunnar, I really want to, um, I want to learn Greek. And I'm like, well, that's great. There's like all sorts of resources out there. And, uh, you know, I'll point you in the right direction. She's like, no, but would you be willing to, to, to like meet with me and teach me Greek? It's like, oh, yeah. I'm, like, You're, I'm thinking to myself, you're in so much trouble, kid. Because I don't, I'm not a Greek teacher. Like I like, I did Greek and I use Greek, but I'm not a teacher. And so I'm like, so of course. But Deborah's so sweet, and her family, we just love them. They, you know, they 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 watch Gideon right now, so that Anna can sit through church. And, and uh, 
And so then, of course, what I do is I email my Greek professor, and I said, Thomas, there is a girl in Valley Center that is in terrible trouble, and I need your help. She's asked me to teach her Greek, and I'm not a Greek teacher. And can you give me all of your tests and, like, everything just so that I can begin to, like, help her along? And so he wrote back. He's like, oh, I'd love to help. And he's like, oh, I'm not a Greek teacher either. I got, I got roped into it the same way. And you, you truly learn by teaching. And so I'd be happy to help you out. And so he emails me all of his tests. None of the answers. Just the tests. <laughs> and so there I am. I'm, week to week, it's like a cram. Like, I, you know, like Deborah and I meet on Wednesday before Bible study. I, I grade her. And I go through the test. Like, you know, I, of course, have to take the test, grade myself, and then give her the test so that I can give the right answer. And so then the first week, she gets to the extra credit section. And she's like, well, I got it 100%, and do I have to do the extra credit? I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you not pay attention in church? Haven't I told this story a million times about Thomas? Thomas is this dear man, my Greek teacher, who I love with all of my heart. He is a dear brother in the Lord. Whenever I see him, the first thing he says is every week, me and my wife, Mary, we faithfully pray for you, your ministry at Valley Baptist Church. We pray for Anna, and we pray for your three kids. But when he says it, it's true. People tell me all the time that they pray for me, but he, when he says that he prays for me, that means that he's up at 3 a.m. on Sundays praying for me. And, and this dear man taught me how to study what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. And I'll never forget that first test. I took the test. I knew I got 100%. I got to the extra credit. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't do the extra credit part because I didn't need it. I, I got 100 and so I was just going to go run to get a soda. I ran and got my soda, came back. It was time to grade the test, gone, came down to the extra credit time. And he said, hey, um, Gunnar, why don't you do the extra credit? I'm like, I got 100%. He's like, Gunnar, are you here for the grade or are you here to learn? Like, why don't, you're a military man. I thought you were like, I, I really, my understanding of you as a student is that we're, we're here because the Lord has us here, not for a grade. Are you here just for a grade? I'm, I was just, he was just, I'm just taken aback. And I was just tears in my eyes. Thomas, he's like my grandfather. I'm so, uh, it'll never, ever happen again. And so for the rest of the time in class, and even when I study, I still have Thomas in my brain. Am I preparing with the text, with the intensity that would pass like what he expects of his students? And it's not a legalistic thing. There's total love there. But I love him and I, I want to please him. And, and that's, that's grace, which we'll talk more about later. So, of course, he answers the question. So we sin because we're, because we're not under the law but under grace. He says, may it never be. He says, do, do you not know, verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. So let me just put this in simple terms. Paul, continuing from the question that he, that he poses in verse 15, says, says we're all slaves. All of us are slaves. It doesn't mean much to us in our context in Southern California and the United States. Slavery was something, yeah, it happened kind of in the South, 100 years ago, 80 years ago, like some, sometime back then. 
I've never dealt with it. But to Paul's recipients, it depends on who you search for evidence. But at Rome, during the time of writing, a third to a half of all of the people in Rome were in slavery, that they were slaves. And then you have a huge percentage of the other people who actually owned the slaves. And then as Christ came, then you have all of these issues. How do we in Christ, where, where there's no Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, how do we worship together if I'm a slave owner and three of you are my slaves? How does that work out? And we get letters like Philemon. One little great little letter. This guy who basically ran. He got away as fast as he could. He stole some stuff to fund himself to get away. Then he becomes a Christian when he met Paul. And now Paul says, I know who, I know who um, Onesimus is. He's a believer, your old slave master. You're a Christian now. You need to go back. You need to do what's right. You need to do the right thing. You need to go back and you need to worship with your believers there. And I'm going to send a letter. And if you've stolen so much that you can't repay him, what I'm going to do is I'll say that anything that you've stolen that you haven't repaid, I'm going to cover it. And so there's great, like the, the difficulty of how does Christianity play out in these situations was a very real thing. And so when Paul uses this, this term of slavery, this is something that would have, oh, he's talking about slavery. And he says concerning slavery that there's, there's two options. There's either obedience to God or there's disobedience to God. Now, he's a little bit more wording. He, he phrases it in a way that's not that simple. But he says, listen, you can be obedient to God and have life, or you can be disobedient to God that results in death. But we all are slaves. And who are you a slave to? Now, I'm a totally, I'm a legalist in my heart. I'm a total legalist. You know why I'm a legalist? Because I like lists. <laughs> Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And so I expect God to give me a list of things that I can start my day. Okay, don't beat my wife. <laughs> Love my kids. Pay your bills. Read your Bible. Do all this stuff so that I can just go through my life. Zoom, 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 zoom. I have my list. Then I have my list, but I look at Larry, and Larry, Larry's not checking the boxes. <laughs> Larry's still beating my wife. You know, I... <laughs> For those of you who are visiting, Larry's the he's our you know he's the one that you got to stay on top of him or he makes fun of you. So, so, so then we start taking our list and we start judging others based on our list and we we become total legalistic over the issue and we lose the whole the whole spirit. And because of my legalism, when I read this, I, I start thinking, man, these 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 Romans they're blowing it. They got the Apostle Paul telling them that they're slaves of sin, that they're doing the wrong thing. But then you come to verse 17, and then I realize I've missed the whole, I've missed it. My mind got off track because I'm a legalist. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. Remember Romans chapter 1 verse 8 was the, the beginning of his introduction. He'd already said, he, he, it's Paul... He identifies himself as a slave of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Then he, he shares a lot about the gospel. Then in verse 7, he says to um, the beloved God in Rome. 
So he says that I, it's Paul writing. He's writing to the believers in Rome. We learned that he's never met them before. He doesn't know them. He knows nothing about them other than what he's heard. And in verse 8, he shares what he knows of these believers in Rome, who he longs to see. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He starts his letter with like, you know what? You guys are doing awesome. When, when the people around the world talk about the church that's in Rome, they say that their faith is amazing, that they're doing great things. And he goes in to say, like, I long to see you. I want to I go spend time with you that I would be encouraged, that I could be an encouragement to you. And now when we go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he says, thanks be to God, this doxology, this praise be the Lord, that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. He has nothing but praise for them. And so when we read verse 16, I'm sorry if I'm all over the place for you guys. Hopefully you're able to, you know, keep up with my week long of studying. <laughs> he asks the question, what then shall we say? What then shall we sin because we're not under law? Verse 15, he says, may it never be. And in making the point of that question, answering the may it never be, he's, he's posing a theoretical argument or a theological argument, teaching doctrine. Why may it never be? Why, why shouldn't you continue to sin like if you're under grace and not under the law? And, and then he says, do you not know knowledge? God wants us to know these things. That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. So if you're a Christian and you're under grace and yet you continue to make the choice to go back to sin, you're submitting yourself to slavery, which Christ has set you free from, resulting in death. Or in Christ, as he set you free as you're under grace, you can be obedient as a slave to, to obedience resulting in righteousness. There's the choice. And then he says, but thanks be to God. I'm so stoked. I'm so encouraged. That though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart. And this whole issue of obedience from the heart, that th th this is what grace is about. The Bible speaks about the heart, sort of not as the organ that, that pumps blood throughout your body, but sort of the, the, the innermost being of your core. You know, I talked about Thomas and my desire to make Thomas pleased, that, that my life would be pleasing to him, that I want to honor him. It's not because he's cracking the whip over me. No. It's because that man loves me so much. He doesn't just love me. He loves my wife. He loves my kids. He's praying for me. He wants nothing but the best for me. And it's his great love for me that's affected me at the core of who I am. So that when it comes to, to preaching and studying and, and how I live my life as a pastor with integrity, it has to do with his influence. But he's just a small picture of God to me. That God loves me. He's not putting all of these rules. He loves us. But he didn't create us as robots. He, he wants us to love him back. And so he lays these options before us. And they became obedient from their heart. 
this this wasn't an external sort of oh I gotta I gotta make myself look good. And that's what Christians do. Ann and I we don't even drive to church together anymore because when we first got married, that's when our greatest fights would happen. Uh, it's, it's true, right? <laughs> and I, I your wives didn't tell me what happened this morning. Just you know, and we don't take separate cars because I'm now I'm here earlier and. But man, we would get in fights on the way to church. And he'd have the last jab as you got out of the car and he'd slam the door shut. <laughs> he'd walk it, you'd walk into church. And uh how you doing? Oh, praise the Lord. He is so good. He's so gracious, so kind. His, gr- his grace just abounds in our life. You're shooting daggers over at your wife with your eyes. Don't give me superficial Christianity. I love the new Christian that doesn't know better. Doesn't know what you're supposed to act like. I mean, I think in this church we've had like new Christians that they like and say, hey, does anybody have like a prayer phrase? Like every now and again, I'll do that where I just let people stand up. And I think that there's been like new believers that like use profanity in church. I'm like, that couldn't have been what I just heard. But I'm like, that's that's awesome. <laughs> like I'll take raw. I'm really struggling. I'm like doing all this stuff and I don't like give me honesty, transparency any day of the week. A person who knows the love of God, they've they've been set free. God's doing this work. I'm trying to figure out if I want to. I don't think I want to tell my story here yet. They, they, they've, they've been set free. You become slaves of righteousness. And in verse 19, it's like Paul almost gets embarrassed. As he, as he starts speaking about slavery, it's like I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. It's like I'm using human terms. Certainly God is not a slave master over us putting all of these rules and restrictions over us, telling this is what you have to do or you're going to get the whip. He said, I feel foolish using these terms, but, but, but as, I'm a, as I'm a pastor and trying to teach, I, I want to use real illustrations that make sense so that you get it, so that you see that, that you have been set free from Christ, yet you continue in sin, what you're really doing, that you're subjecting yourself to slavery. It happens all over. I think of Ephesians chapter 5, the, the great passage that is used at almost every wedding about husbands submit to your wives. Wait, did I say it wrong way? I did. <laughs> Girls are... <laughs> I, have, I have too many files open. In, I have too many files open in my brain. Guys are all screaming heresy. <laughs> Women are all screeching, preach it, brother. <laughs> he ends with wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. None of that passage has to do with marriage. I mean, it does. We learn principles. That whole passage, Paul's trying to explain a relationship to Christ. That we as the church, our relationship to Christ. And as he's thinking about the intimacy, the relationship that those who have been saved have with God, the father, the creator of the universe. When he looks out amongst humanity, the only thing that he thinks could possibly 
paint the picture of intimacy and, and relationship that we have with the Father is marriage. It's beautiful. And it totally applies to marriage. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to marriage. But so Paul's like, he's like, man, I'm, I'm speaking in human terms. Like he's embarrassed because of the weakness of your flesh. Who's, wait, who's he writing to? Is he writing the church in Corinth? The Corinthians is written to like the Jerry Springer of Christianity during that era. But I already read to you, Romans 1, their faith is great. They're doing wonderful things. Thanks be to God that they changed over. And yet now he says he's he's using this illustration because of their weakness of their faith. Yeah, I'm like all backwards today. See, Larry's on my toes. Thank you, though, that because of the, the weakness of their flesh. But if this wasn't here and I had to examine what can I tell you about the church in Rome from the evidence that we have within Romans, I would say, man, they're a good, strong church. They have great faith. Yet Paul describes them as having weak, weak, they're weak in their flesh. And, and then that is very humbling to me because, because we sort of, in our legalism, we kind of evaluate Christians. We have the good ones and we have the bad ones. I was always kind of felt like I was a bad one. I feel like I've made it a little bit up in my legalism with my list. I think I've like advanced, although that list means nothing. But I had these ideas, these Christians like my wife who grew up in the mission field, who who I thought missionaries were like super duper Christians. And then I started meeting a bunch of them and they're like, don't call us super duper Christians. We are a mess. Like we, we're just, God's just called us over here. We're not any more special. The, the reality is, is we are all weak. Our flesh is terribly strong. And yet we come to church and we want to put on this false picture. And it's not what Christianity is all about. My time in the SEAL teams, I think, is messed up. Or maybe it's corrected my understanding of church. See, when you're in a firefight in combat... Your goal is to get fire back to try to disengage the fight, and then you're kind of running, at least in the SEAL teams. We're, we're not designed to be in big firefights. We want to get out from under the firefight as fast as possible. And so as we lay down fire, we're running away trying to get a bite on the person, that, meaning that we have an angle on them where they're no longer shooting effectively at us. Once we get to a safe place, which means their bullets are still shooting at us, but they're not really effective, meaning they're not hitting us, we stop, we form a perimeter, we have everybody go out, the radio guy, myself, and the officer sit in the middle, and we basically go around the edge, and we ask two questions, are you okay, and how much ammo do you have? So if you're okay, you give the okay signal, I have, I'm okay, and I have two magazines, or you give the, uh, my arm's gone, I'm really, I'm not, I can't even give you anything, because my arm got shot off, I need some help here, I'm going to bleed out, and then it's like, the officer is okay. We need the medic over here. Start treating this guy so we can get ready for transport. You have no magazines. This guy has five. Give me two of your magazines. And you give it to the two guys. Then you guys continue your fight. That's what church is. This isn't a place where we come and we act like we have all, everything together. This is where we're out in the world. We're living our life. We're in warfare. We're beat up. We're down. So don't come in here and put on your best face. How are you doing? You know, I'm really struggling. And I love it when... People are really struggling. Like, I really am hurting. Can you pray for me? Can you get some people to, like, lay hands and pray for me? And we do that. 
This is the place where we're to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to help us to go out because it's a battle out there. And the battle begins within you. See, listen, he, he goes on to say in verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. He's talking about sin. Lawlessness is sin, being disobedient to the things that God has said. I've already proved to you guys today how, like, how mechanically and, um, you know, like what carpentry and incompetent I am. But one thing I learned from a mechanic when, when one of my car, it was my Volkswagen bug. The brakes had kind of gone out. Now it's like leaking oil where like if I wanted to go to high school, which was like two miles, I'd go there and I'd have to put like three quarts of oil into the engine. And it only took four quarts of oil, but I like wanted to keep pushing it. And the mechanic said, you know what? Um, oil leaks don't get better. I'm like, you don't think it'll like, can I just put some sawdust or something in there to like, he's like, no, it's, it'll only get worse. That's sin. Sin only gets worse. You think, oh, it's just a little sin. I'm going to come over here. You do that one little sin, and then next thing you know, then there's another step. Because that's just a little sin from where you just were. Then there's just a little sin from here. And he says lawlessness creates more lawlessness. Then you end up down this road that you don't even know how you got there, that you're terribly ensnared by poor choices that lead to death. And then you find yourself there. Then he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. If you drop down to verse 22, you'll see the word sanctification also, if you are using the New American Standard. Other translations translate the word sanctification, holiness, because the word literally comes from the idea of holiness. That as we submit ourselves, as we subject ourselves to righteousness, it results in holiness. Holiness, and it's to, to be set apart for a purpose. A, a refining process, this sanctification, this moving you from where you are to being Christ-like. It's a journey in this life. Sanctification and justification are two big theological words that are now used in Romans. It's only, sanctification is only used twice in all of Romans, and it's right here in this passage. Justification is being legally declared just before God. Not from your own actions, but because of the actions of Christ and the cross. That when you come to faith in Christ, God no longer sees you in your sin. What he sees is the finished work of Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That's Gunner's translation, so it's close. Don't, don't, don't pull a wanas on me, because that's not Gunner. <laughs> that, that, that we're credited. We get in, our account of righteousness is imputed with his righteousness. But, but now that we've been justified, we still have this issue that we're human, that, that we have this flesh and we have this new nature in Christ. And there's a war going on within us. And the process of, of when you first get saved to the day you die, God is chipping away in your life, making you more and more like Christ. And then when you die or you meet him at the rapture, if he, he comes, then we're going we're gonna to be perfect. Our sin nature is going to be removed. We're going to have our glorified bodies. And this process of sanctification can be painful. When I first became a Christian, 
one of the songs that I loved getting stuck in my head was the song Holiness. I would crack myself up. I'd be like two in the morning. I'm on one of those rigid inflatable boats, those ribs, fully loaded in combat gear, going vroom, vroom, going, you know, 50 miles an hour through the ocean to take over an oil smuggler. And I'd be like rocking out into my head. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. You know, like I loved it. I don't know if you know this. We don't sing it here enough. Hint, hint. (laughs) Rick's gone, hopefully. Uh, But the words to the song are, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness is what you want from me. Take my life and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, O Lord. Righteousness is what I long for. Righteousness is what I need. Righteousness is what you want from me. I love that song, not because it's a song, but because when I sing it, it's a prayer from my heart. I mean it. Lord, I want holiness. Lord, take my life. Form it. Lord, take my mind. Transform it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lord, I want my mind to be shaped by your thoughts. Lord, take my will, which is so stubborn and so strong. Conform it to your will that the things that I want are the things that you want. And the problem with all of this is I face resistance. I face resistance. I really, really, really want all of that stuff. We Christians, we're good about complaining about the laws in California and our culture and everything like going wrong. Which I'm okay. I'm okay with politics. I'm okay. Like we like submitting to authority means that we vote. Like I'm all okay with that. But the issue is, is as much as I pray this, as much as I want to be conformed to His will, as much as I want holiness, as much as I want this. The resistance comes from within me. Send me to Alaska out in the middle of the woods with no other people. And there's still this problem of my flesh wanting to go the other direction. The problem is in our hearts. And he continues, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Let that one sink in. He says that before you came to the cross, because the journey to the cross for everyone, I don't care if you were raised in the church and you were saved at, you know, like my wife, I think, was, was, was you're five years, five days old? <laughs> like I, I always harass her. She became a Christian very early on. Her dad was, you know, missionary, pastor. I always, it's our, our joke. But, but when she became a Christian, she had to, just like me, Just like you, we had to bow down and acknowledge our sinfulness. We are terribly sinful. We had to humble ourselves before the Lord and recognize that he is the only way that his death on the cross is the barrier that we must all cross. And to Paul, everything Christian, it goes back to the cross. There's the cross, there's before the cross. But before the cross, you had total freedom. You're not a Christian. Don't, I don't care if you're drinking. I don't care if you're doing whatever. Like it, it's, not, it's not going to result in goodness. But the Bible says that you need Jesus. It doesn't say you need to like live by our rules. And Christians, we're so good at saying, you need to live by these rules. You're not acting like a Christian. It's like, I'm not a Christian. 
And then we start thinking before the cross that in order to become a Christian, we need to start acting like a Christian. We need to start cleaning ourselves up so that God will accept us, which is not what the Bible says. What we need is the cross. And he says, before you were a Christian, you had freedom to live in unrighteousness, to do whatever you want. He says, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. One thing I don't hear a lot in churches today, we've all heard that sin is bad, but you don't hear that sin is fun. Sin is fun. It's a lot of fun for, for a moment, for a season. All sin ends in death, but it's fun. It's appealing. There's a draw to it. When I look at this, when I see why are you, what benefit are you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? Why are you longing for those things which you are totally ashamed of? I don't drink, and this isn't about drinking. The Bible is clear about drunkenness. The Bible is okay with consumption of alcohol, just for the record. But for me, I don't have the gift of moderation. Never have. And, and alcohol was a thing I struggled with, total drunkenness. Destruction came into my life because of alcohol. It started with my mom. My abusive childhood was a direct result of alcohol. Then I started drinking, and then I started doing my own destruction. But now that I've been a Christian for a long time, man, I like I like alcohol. I really do. Like I remember, like I was I was like sober for for many. I mean, I still am sober. I was sober for. <laughs> just be careful, poor Larry. Like I went many years without drinking any alcohol. And then on Anna and I's 10-year anniversary, about a year and a half ago, we went up to San Francisco. And, and, and we were going to go to a restaurant, and I'm like, I really want a glass of like red wine. She's like, do whatever you want. Just freedom. Do whatever you want. Stop, stop being a big baby and making a big deal of this. Because I'm like, I'm like, well, is it okay if I like, she's like, do whatever you want. I don't care. I'm like, well, we're up here. There's nobody from church, and it's not like... And I feel like legalism's developed in my heart, so I really feel like I need to have a glass of wine in order to remove the legalism, so I can't say that I don't drink. She's like, do whatever you want. But, but then as she... She didn't really care, but then as I'm like having this tug-of-war in my mind and the conversation I'm having, I didn't let her in on at the time. But I'm like, why, why do I want to even like have a glass of... Like, why do I want to go back there? When it's caused so much damage in my life. And I had this tug of war until we went to Italy and we were meeting with our missionaries. And Andrea was like harassing me because he's okay with having a glass of wine. And he wanted to give me a Florentine steak. And he's like, you got to have a glass of wine. He's like, because when you eat the steak and you drink the wine, there's like this marriage of flavor in your stomach. <laughs> and he's like, but uh, brother, I'll like, I don't want to stumble you. Like, I don't want to whatever. And so we'd kind of like, you know, on one side I was like, well, man, if it's like going to like, I don't want to be a barrier to reaching your people. So if I have to drink wine, I'll do it. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this to you. So I go to the bathroom. I come back. And Italians like that water with the sparkling stuff. It's horrible. Sparkling water. So I'm dying of thirst. I come back to the table and there's some sparkling water, but it looked yellow, but I was thirsty. So I just like, and I was like, whoa, that's champagne. And Anna's like, well, you knucklehead, it's yellow water. I figured you'd recognize it. And, and, but in that moment, where I'm going with all of this, 
I certainly wasn't drunk, but I felt it. I felt the effects of that. that I mean, it was a tiny little glass. I could feel it. And it took me back to those days of no control. And I said, no, I don't, I, I'm not legalistic. I just know me. I know my flesh. And I'm not going down that road again. I'm not doing it. And he says, therefore, what benefit are you deriving from the things that you're now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. I, I don't know what your sin is. But, but sin is enticing. Because it's fun. It feels good. You have fun with it. You're under grace, right? You don't have to worry about it. And we are under grace. But sin will tell you a lie. And in the end is death. He says, verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. There's that holiness. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. When I see this whole passage, what I see is, this is not about salvation Being saved, being in a relationship with God comes through faith alone. It's by grace. It's not of works. As we transition to chapter 6, he starts talking about grace. The Christian life, how does it work out? And there's great liberty as Christians. However, we're faced with choices. We are not victims. When I look at this picture, I think of Joshua. I love that book, Joshua. I would preach Joshua if it, like, I mean, I would, maybe I will, but I really like the first part. Then the second part gets a little bit like, oh, man, it's like when they start dishing out the land. And then you get to the last chapter, you're like, oh, this is really good. But it starts with, do not be fearful, but be courageous, Joshua, as you lead the people of Israel into the promised land. It goes through all of his great battles and conquering, and the warrior spirit comes alive. And then at the very end, as the old man, as he's, as he's, as he's passing off his, his ministry, his command, he looks to the people of Israel and he says, I, you guys can choose like our grandfathers. You can follow the false gods. You can follow the idols. Do whatever you want. But for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. I understand the choice between us. And there's a choice. And every day we're faced with choices. Are you going to choose obedience or disobedience? And I'm not saying that this is easy. But what is in your mind? It begins in your mind. I think of Micah 6, 8. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God doesn't tell us these things because he's trying to hurt us or, or trying to ruin our lives that we're bored and miserable and not having any fun because having fun over there in the sin camp, that's so much more fun. And that's where all the happiness is. That's a, that's a, that's a facade. True joy, true happiness is found in Christ. And this is doctrine. I want to end with Philippians. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians... Paul, his dream had come true. He was now under arrest. He'd, he's in Rome. He'd made the journey. He'd seen the church there. While he's there, uh, this church in Philippi, 
knew of his arrest and they wanted to help fund him. They wanted to help care for him. So they sent their pastor to Paul to bring a love offering, a gift so that Paul could sustain himself. While their pastor is there, he becomes sick almost to the point of death. And the church in Philippi is now very discouraged. They're like our founding pastors under arrest. He's probably going to die. He's going to be executed. The pastor who is now our pastor, now he's sick. Now what are we supposed to do? They're discouraged. Paul sends this great letter of thanksgiving and encouragement. And in many ways, I believe that this letter is the outworking of the doctrine that we read in Romans chapter 6. Then Romans chapter, I mean, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, we read this, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. When he looks, man, everybody's page must be the same. Everybody like flipped over right there. So he says, the first choice, when he looks at these people in Philippi, these believers, he says, look to me, look to me, Paul, look to those who are like me, who are following after Christ. Look to our example. As I follow Christ, you should see how it works out in my life. And if you want to follow Christ, you can look to me and see how it works itself out. Man, I want that. As your pastor, my aim is to be able to say, and I'm totally not perfect and neither was Paul, but I hope that with a clear conscience, I can stand before you and say, you know what? I'm following after Christ with passion. I want you to be able to look to me to see what it looks like. Follow my example. I'm leading from the front. That we should be able to say that because your life is an example. The whole do as I say, not as I do with your kids doesn't work. They do as you do. The things you say, that's just hypocrisy. Then he looks to the other group, verse 18. But many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping. This is the pastor's heart. There are those that look like the truth. They look like they're following after Christ, but they're leading you astray. They're leading you into religion or into false teaching. And Paul saw this and his heart was breaking because he cared for his people as any pastor should. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. So you have Paul and his group living in obedience. You have this other group leading in disobedience, which leads to death in sin. Their aim is earthly things. Their, their whole perspective is based on this world. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. He then says, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. For those of us who are in Christ, you've been issued a new passport, stamped heaven by the blood of Christ is the seal. Your citizenship is there from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So those of us who have been saved, we're justified by faith. We eagerly wait for our savior. You're either going to meet him in death or he's going to come back and we're going to meet him in the the sky. But between now and then, either one of those two things is the process of sanctification that God is refining, doing this work in our lives. But at that moment, when we meet him, 
we're told in verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. If we were to go to Colossians, we'd see that when we read Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis, well, not chapter 3, that's bad. But when we see that God looked and said, hey, let's, let's create the earth. And he spoke the earth into existence. Colossians tells us that it was Christ that formed the world, that he holds the world together. It's in his power. And with that power that can create out of nothing is the same power that's going to take this body, this humble estate, this, this sinful man on the one hand and this new nature. He, he's going to conform it into his image. He's going to do away with this sin nature. And there I'll be in glory. I'm looking forward to that day, and I hope you are too. That's the day we have to have in our minds, because as we look forward to that day, it affects how we live today. See chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. We endure this life we can stay solid. We stay grounded. We continue to, to, to take steps towards Christ because we long for that day. We will stand before him. We will give an account. And yesterday with these two funerals, with the anniversary, with, with this dear friend Dan, who, who gave his life to the Lord at a young age, and just to see all of these people stand up and and testify to his resilience, his his commitment to just walking after the Lord, even in death, that he didn't want it to be about him. It was just humbling. It was in, was was an encouragement to me that he heard, well done, my good and faithful servant, that he fought the fight, he endured. And then on the other hand was another friend who, when I first became a Christian, was zealous and had all this stuff. He, he seemed, I mean, he could play the drums and he was musical. And I, I thought that, you know, that's what Christianity was. That, that he was just a, a, a man of what seemed to be like what Christianity was. And then to see, uh, after a series of choices, his life make a bunch of wrong turns and sin that led to a place where he died as a young age because he took his life. That both of these funerals happened on the same day. I couldn't go to both, but through Facebook, I'm able to watch both. It was just a sobering reminder to me that I want to continue on this path. My flesh is weak, but I, I need you guys to keep the fight. We need each other. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your, this day. Lord, I pray for those in this room who maybe don't know Christ as Savior. Father, whatever they need or they desire, Lord, um, I pray that you would help them to, to connect the dots in their mind and their heart, Lord, that they would see what you've done uh, for them, Lord, your great love for them, that they would be able to reach out and, and to believe in Christ, the Savior. Father, we thank you that it's not about religion, it's not about a list, it's about a, a deep love that you have for us. For those of us that have placed our lives into your hands, Lord, we, we are um, 
just torn in this life, Lord. Our flesh is so strong. Our, our spirit's willing and desires righteousness. That, Lord, we face resistance. And so, Father, we pray that as we live this life, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on you. Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would be empowered, Lord, to, to walk the walk. Lord, help us not to grow confident in our flesh, Lord. Keep us humble before you, Lord. We need your help. And Father, for those in this room who are following after yours, you but are discouraged and have fallen down, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a loving church, that we would be able to come alongside, to pray, to support, to comfort, to encourage one another in this journey. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.